When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We worship an awesome God in the blue states. The, the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim. Not God bless America, God damn America. My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself is now being redefined and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Welcome to the history of evangelicals and politics, the Obama era. This is episode 23, The Senate Conducts Hearings on Marriage, Part 2. I'm John Fia. On June 18, 2004, Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist of Tennessee scheduled a July 12th cloture vote on the federal marriage amendment proposed by Colorado Congresswoman Marilyn Musgrave and Colorado Senator Wayne Allard. This essentially meant that the Senate would vote on whether or not to cast a final vote on the amendment. We'll discuss this vote in our next episode. But in this episode of A History of Evangelicals and Politics podcast, our focus is on the weeks leading up to the July 12 cloture vote as supporters and opponents of a federal marriage amendment duked it out in the Senate and in the press. Christian right organizations and other evangelical groups continued to rally in support of the amendment. Many of them, such as James Dobson's Focus on the Family, listed the names of senators and their positions on the amendment, and then urged their constituencies to make phone calls and send emails to those who opposed the amendment or who were undecided. Focus also published a web page on its site titled why Marriage Matters, which included testimonials from heterosexual couples extolling the virtues of traditional marriage. In late June, Dobson also sent a letter to his constituents listing 11 arguments against same-sex marriage. He claimed that the legalization of gay marriage would destroy the traditional family, harm children, lead to the teaching of homosexuality in public schools, make adoption laws obsolete, impact foster care programs, collapse the healthcare system due to the growing number of people who would need to be covered, stress the social security system due to the millions of new eligible dependents, threaten religious freedom, set a negative example for other nations who follow America's lead, hurt the advancement of the gospel, and end the culture war for the soul of America making the world, as Dobson put it, 
as it was in the days of Noah. On the day of Frist's announcement, Family Research Council President Tony Perkins issued a press release stating, we look forward to seeing which senators will step up to the plate and take a stand in defense of marriage next month. We have heard from many senators who have declined to co-sponsor the federal marriage amendment, but have privately said they will still vote for it. It will be interesting to see if they keep their word. Perkins announced a Family Research Council prayer meeting to take place at the Bellevue Baptist Church. This was the Memphis Church of conservative Southern Baptist leader, Adrian Rogers. The event would take place on July 11th the eve of the Senate cloture vote. Speakers scheduled for the event included Dobson, Charles Colson of Prison Fellowship Ministries, and Southern Baptist Public Policy Director Richard Land. Meanwhile, President George W. Bush made his third consecutive appearance, this time via satellite feed, at the annual Southern Baptist Convention held in Indianapolis in mid-June. There, he reaffirmed his commitment to a constitutional amendment banning gay marriage before thousands of cheering Baptists. Outgoing convention president Jack Graham, the pastor of the Dallas area megachurch Prestonwood Baptist Church, called Bush a man of personal faith whose leadership is great for America. In his address as the outgoing president, Graham told the delegates that the 2004 election matters because there are two different viewpoints on where this culture needs to be on the moral issues of our time. He urged Southern Baptists to lobby Congress in favor of the federal marriage amendment. Later in the week, those in attendance were encouraged to return home and urge their local congregations to join the convention's voter registration campaign. An Odessa, Texas organization called Concerned Americans took out an ad in the Odessa American in support of the amendment. The ad included a quote from Gary Bauer of the Christian right organization, American Values. It read, my friends, we are at a crisis moment on Capitol Hill on the marriage issue. Members of Congress report they are hearing more from the pro-homosexual marriage crowd than they are hearing from those of us who believe marriage should remain between a man and a woman. Bauer lamented that the gay community is having more input than all Christians in all churches in the United States put together, adding, God help us. The Odessa group also quoted the early 19th century evangelist Charles Finney. Politics are a part of religion in such a country as this, and Christians must do their duty to their country as part of their duty to God. The advertisement informed its readers that God will bless or curse this nation according to the course Christians take in politics. Bauer's concerns about evangelical apathy toward the federal marriage amendment were actually quite real. On June 20th, the Associated Press did a story on evangelical pastors who struggled to get their congregations motivated to support the federal marriage amendment. A church of the Nazarene pastor in Leesburg, Virginia, claimed that he had been preaching to his people that gay marriage might lead to the downfall of Western civilization. But they were responding with lethargy and what he called a lay down and roll over and play dead attitude. Alan Cooperman, the author of this piece at the AP, wrote, 
Across the country, evangelical Christians are voicing frustration and puzzlement that there has not been more of a political outcry since May 17, when Massachusetts began issuing marriage licenses to gay couples. Cooperman added, evangelical leaders had predicted that a chorus of righteous anger would rise up out of churches from coast to coast and overwhelm Congress with letters, emails, and phone calls in support of a constitutional amendment banning gay marriage. But that has not happened. The piece quoted Perkins, who said, standing on Capitol Hill listening, you don't hear anything. John Green, a scholar of evangelical and politics at the University of Akron, told Cooperman that the push for a constitutional ban on gay marriage had three essential problems. First, it runs counter to many conservatives' preference for resolving issues at the state level. Second, it lacks urgency because 39 states had already passed laws against same-sex marriage. And third, many evangelicals did not see the fight against same-sex marriage as a top priority. They seemed more concerned with the Iraq war and the economy. Moreover, those evangelicals and politicians who were willing to do battle in support of a federal marriage amendment were not always unified in their approach. Most members of Congress who supported the amendment wanted to make sure that the rights and benefits of marriage be afforded to same-sex couples, even if they were unwilling to go as far to call such a relationship a marriage. But those on the Christian right rejected the idea of extending civil rights and other benefits to same-sex couples. In a June 18, 2004 op-ed in the Baltimore Sun, Perkins made the Family Research Council's position abundantly clear when he wrote, federal legislation should not require businesses to provide homosexual and cohabiting couples with the same benefits as married couples. Making benefits such as healthcare available to couples would undermine the institution of marriage by making it seem as if all relationships are equal. Senate Majority Leader Frist may have scheduled a vote for July, but the chances of a federal marriage amendment passing the Senate were slim. The cloture vote needed 60 senators to prevent a filibuster, and if it somehow managed to get past that vote, it would then, according to the U.S. Constitution, need 67 votes for it to be then sent to the states and considered as an amendment. According to one estimate, the Senate still needed 15 more votes to reach that number of 67. And since the Senate supporters of the amendment wanted to vote on it before the Senate took its summer recess and before more state courts started to permit same-sex marriages, Frist appeared willing to bring the proposed amendment to a cloture vote before it received a stamp of approval from the Senate Judiciary Committee. Opponents of the amendment saw electoral politics at work. Many believed that the GOP leadership was rushing to get a vote on the amendment so that Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry and his running mate, John Edwards, both senators, would be forced to record their opposition to the amendment. If this happened, the GOP could use this as a talking point in the November presidential election and elections in other states. Again, the cloture vote was scheduled for July 12, 
The Democratic National Convention was scheduled to take place from July 26th through July 29th. While Frist denied that his decision to schedule the vote before the convention, or before the November election for that matter, was not motivated by politics, other supporters of the amendment did not deny that this was indeed their motive. For example, Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum in a meeting of the Republican Leadership Conference reportedly said that he wanted to force Kerry and Senate Minority Leader Tom Daschle, Daschle was facing a tough race against the conservative Republican opponent in South Dakota, to vote on the amendment. In the case of Daschle, Santorum believed that a vote against the amendment might cost him his Senate seat. Meanwhile, Washington Post columnist Kathleen Parker chided both sides of the marriage amendment debate and reflected on the implications of gay marriage for the future of religious liberty. She referenced the nationwide May 2004 Gallup poll that found that 55% of Americans oppose same-sex marriage. That number was down from 65% who oppose same-sex marriage in December 2003, just six months earlier. And 41% in this poll favored gay marriage. That number was up from 31% in the December poll. Parker then wrote, on the pro-gay marriage side, advocates have proposed the issue only as a question of fairness, civil rights, love, and validation. No fair-minded person wants to prevent another human being from equal protection under the law or the pursuit of happiness. On the other side are mostly heard the voices of the religious right. Regardless of their sincerity, she wrote, such voices tend to fall on deaf ears in a secular society. If people want preaching, they'll go to church. Moreover, some of the rhetoric from the pews is so strident and off-putting, even devout people may prefer other company. There are plenty of good reasons, Parker wrote, to be skeptical about rearranging the basic structure of human society without involving the radicals in black robes who are trying to force their distorted homosexual views on 280 million Americans, as one Christian coalition action alert recently put it. If the Supreme Court ever did recognize gay marriage as equal to heterosexual marriage, then would everyone else, including churches, be forced to recognize gay marriage as equal to? And would any opposition, Parker asked, be deemed hateful by definition, and anyone who opposed gay marriage be considered a hate monger? Would ministers be sued for hate speech for giving a sermon against gay marriage? Would churches lose their tax-exempt status for doing so? Parker concluded, the delicate balance between church and state, in other words, is teetering on the high ledge at this moment. It's ironic that those who oppose church's involvement in state concerns nonetheless have no compunctions when it comes to the state dictating what churches can do. Even non-religious folks should be concerned. Either we believe in separation of church and state or we don't, but you can't have it both ways. Again, these were all important questions that would need to be sorted out in the coming months and years. On June 22, 2004, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing titled Preserving Traditional Marriage, A View from the States. 
This was the fourth Senate committee hearing in the last several months. You may recall that we discussed the first three in our last episode, episode 22. And this was the first such hearing that was actually conducted by a committee rather than a subcommittee. Now, I should also add here that over the past 10 months, the Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on the Constitution had also conducted hearings. These, were, these took place under the leadership of Texas Senator John Cornyn. But unlike the previous three Senate subcommittee hearings on marriage that, again, we discussed in the last episode, the June Judiciary Committee hearing included representatives from both political parties. Those in attendance were Chairman Orrin Hatch, a Republican from Utah, Ranking Member Patrick Leahy, a Democrat from Vermont, Republican Jeff Sessions from Alabama, Republican Cornyn from Texas, Democrat Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, Democrat Russ Feingold from Wisconsin, Democrat Chuck Schumer from New York, and Democrat Dick Durbin from Illinois. Hatch's opening statement decried the Massachusetts Goodridge decision legalizing same-sex marriage in the Commonwealth and lamented the fact that the power to redefine marriage was left in the hands of four activist judges on the state's Supreme Judicial Court. By this point, this was a common argument and Hatch presented his case less on the grounds of whether or not traditional marriage was a moral bedrock of Western civilization, as others had done, and more on the argument that the people, either in their legislatures or through an amendment process, should have the right to redefine the meaning of marriage. Hatch also expressed fear that one day the Supreme Court would declare the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act to be unconstitutional. At the moment, this act allowed a state to refuse to recognize same-sex marriages from other states and define marriage as a union between a man and a woman. But Hatch wanted the kind of long-term security for marriage that only a constitutional amendment banning the practice could provide. Leahy's opening statement accused Hatch and the amendment supporters of believing that the sky had fallen just because Massachusetts now allowed same-sex marriage. But Leahy was most upset with the way the GOP was politicizing the marriage issue in the context of the November elections, especially since Bill Frist and others were fully aware that the federal marriage amendment had no real chance of getting the 60 votes needed to start debate or the 67 votes needed to ultimately pass. The first person to testify before the hearing was Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, a supporter of the federal marriage amendment. He described the situation in Massachusetts and then argued that the debate over marriage was not only about adults, but about children who, as he put it, have the right to have a mother and a father. He mentioned that the Massachusetts Department of Health was now asking whether birth certificates in the Commonwealth needed to be rewritten to replace the words father and mother with parent A and parent B. The sky is not going to be falling, Romney said, but it may affect the development of children and thereby future society as a whole. Hatch agreed with Romney. The two Mormon politicians were both taking the long view. If state courts were allowed to define marriage and marriage couples from one state move to another state, and demanded that their marriages be recognized, soon the Defense of Marriage Act would be tested in the Supreme Court and possibly overturned. 
a federal marriage amendment was thus needed now in order to prevent that from happening. The Democrats on the committee, however, took the short view. Leahy and Kennedy said that the allowance of same-sex marriage in a state would not force churches or synagogues to marry gay couples. Their religious liberty on the matter would be respected. Durbin told Romney that he thought the Defense of Marriage Act was enough to protect traditional marriage in the states that wanted it. We have a preemptive foreign policy, he added. I don't think we ought to have a preemptive constitution. And that is what you are arguing here, that we ought to put a provision in the constitution to preempt the possibility that the Defense of Marriage Act will be found unconstitutional and force on some other state the definition of marriage. And I think that is entirely premature and totally political. Chuck Schumer agreed. We do not put amendments in the Constitution until something has been declared unconstitutional, he said. And at this point, the Defense of Marriage Act was constitutional and would remain so for the foreseeable future. Romney responded with the view that marriage was so important to the good of society that such a preemptive approach was necessary. Bob Barr, the former GOP Georgia member of the House and the author of the Defense of Marriage Act, also testified at this hearing, and he agreed with the Democrats on this point. Though he opposed same-sex marriage personally, he believed the Defense of Marriage Act was enough to protect it. Hatch responded to Barr's testimony at the hearing this way. But what if the Defense of Marriage Act is overturned two or three years from now? This will all be mush. I mean, there will not be any way you can change the situation, and we will have a major sea change in societal, sociological folkways and mores that you just will never be able to get back to what I think the majority of people in this society believe. Hatch thought that if the Senate would pass a federal marriage amendment, virtually every state in the union would ratify it. Colorado Representative Marilyn Musgrave the sponsor of the federal marriage amendment in the House, also testified before the Judiciary Committee. She made an immediate appeal to the words of the Declaration of Independence that our inalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, were endowed by our creator. Because of this, she argued, civil rights exist within the context of God's created order. And since God created humans, male and female, same-sex marriage could not be a right. Rather than following the nation's founding documents, Musgrave believed that the opponents of a federal marriage amendment and the gay community as a whole were trying to advance a social revolution that was unsought and unwanted by the American people. Though Musgrave believed in federalism, or the right of states to decide matters not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, Marriage, she believed, was different. Certain moral propositions, she suggested, are so fundamental that they deserve to be protected by our fundamental law when they come under attack. She compared the banning of gay marriage to the 13th Amendment, the Reconstruction Era Amendment that made slavery illegal. Attached to the hearing record was a letter from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty that countered the idea made by opponents of a federal marriage amendment, 
that if such an amendment were to pass, it would occasion a witch hunt against those congregations and individuals who might seek to hold or participate in religious ceremonies for gay couples. The Beckett Fund turned the tables on this argument, suggesting that if the federal marriage amendment does not pass, more and more states will allow gay marriage. And as Parker alluded to in her Washington Post column, the real witch hunt would be carried out on churches that upheld traditional marriage. The Beckett Fund letter cited a Boston Globe article on Catholic colleges and universities that were studying whether the Massachusetts gay marriage decision meant that they would have to provide married student housing for gay couples or health and retirement benefits to spouses of marriage employees in gay marriages. It also referenced the Salvation Army, a ministry that upheld traditional views on marriage. Would the Salvation Army, which had provided the city of Boston with millions of dollars in contract services for the needy, now be excluded from participation in such contracts? As the debate raged, the Senate prepared for the July 12th vote. Stay tuned. The History of Evangelicals and Politics is produced by Casey Lane. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.